In early Denver, newspapers were the media. At the end of the day, newspapermen gathered to socialize, play some poker, shoot some pool. They organized their own private club, the Denver Press Club. They had a clubhouse built, which still stands today and still functions as a social club and event center and celebrates the rich history of Denver's news reporters and newsmakers, which now includes electronic journalists and the fields of public relations and advertising. The Denver Press Club is the oldest continually operating press club in the country and sponsors and hosts a variety of entertaining and informative programs and events. This edition of the Denver Press Club is sponsored by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. Hello and welcome to the second Colorado Authors League book beat at the Denver Press Club. Thank you all for coming. My name is Denny Dressman and I'll be the host of this program. The program is sponsored by the Denver Press Club and the Colorado Authors League. Cal is proud to be here and excited to continue this program. This is our second one. We have an exciting lineup tonight of four Colorado authors who are finalists for various Cal Writing Awards. And I must tell you, the Cal Writing Awards are something special. Uh, Cal will celebrate its 85th year uh, this, this year, and the Cal Writing Awards have been around since the 30s. So the people who are finalists and the people who win these awards are, are the latest in a long line of honored writers in the state. Tonight each author will begin by telling you a little bit about his or her book and then we'll have a brief conversation. Our first author is Jennifer Kinchlow. Her book, a finalist in the genre fiction category of the Cal Awards, is titled The Secret Life of Anna Blanc. Already Jennifer's book has won awards for mystery and historical mystery and has been described by one reviewer as I Love Lucy meets Agatha Christie. <laughs> Jennifer, tell us about your entertaining historical novel. It's set in 1907 Los Angeles among the police matrons of the LAPD and uh, there's a young socialite who has Sherlockian wit and she buys off her chaperone and uses an alias to get a job with the LAPD. How did you come up with this idea? I ran across an article about Alice Stebbins Wells, who was the first female cop in Los Angeles, and I was inspired by her and I wanted to write something sort of in her honor. And when, I, when my character came out, she's nothing like Alice Stebbins Wells. She's younger, she's, um, she's beautiful, she's wealthy, and she's a little, she's naive, and so I didn't think um, I didn't think she was much like Alice at all, but it is sort of a tribute to her. It's based on, on Alice as a, as a true life character? No, it started out based on Alice, but um, it evolved into something different. So where did, where did you get the, the substance of your story? Did you, did you create it all or were you basing it on some of her experiences? Um, I used, in a sense, I took Alice out of her 
environment and replaced her with Anna Blanc. So um, Anna works in the same building that Alice worked in. Um, she does the same job that Alice would have done, but I took her um, Alice out. So, um, and I used a lot of true life stories from the newspaper about what was going on in Los Angeles at the time. So it's really packed full of authentic LA history. And, and all crime history or, or other types of things? Um, some of it's politics. Uh, some of it's crime. One of the, the subplot in the book has to do with the Boyle Heights rape fiend who was a real character in Los Angeles um, who had a s special or a certain um, way of committing his crime and um, he would attack couples and um, the LAPD would dress like women to try and capture him. So he's in the book. Um, but I fictionalize everything. Have you been to Los Angeles? I'm from Los Angeles. So this is a, this is this is a story really about your hometown. Yes, yes. And in a way, I wrote the book. I, I, we moved to Denver, and I was a little homesick. So um, in a way, I was writing about Los Angeles just um, to you know for nostalgia. How long have you been in Denver? Ten years now. Ten years. So when when did you write the book? Um, I finished it in 2013. When and, did you start it? Uh, <laughs> I want to say 2011. Um, but it started out as a screenplay, and then worked on it for a year. And then I set it aside for a year, and then I worked on it again for another couple years. So. So, how did it? How did it differ? How did you shift gears, going from a screenplay to a, to a novel? Oh. I think it just, the story just got better because I had a lot of time to develop it. Um, and also, my character became more herself and less Alice Stebbins-Wells. And how, how did that happen? Is that, is that something that, that you consciously did or did it just evolve? It just evolved, yeah. So not consciously at all. So um, are you working on another one? Yeah, it's uh, set in 1908 Chinatown in Los Angeles. It has the same protagonist, and it's also based on stories that I took from the newspaper. And the first one um, is about two slave girls who were um, kidnapped from their uh, owner, who was a Tong president, and he accused the rival gang of stealing his girls. And um, he offered a thousand dollar reward for the return of his girls and in order to avert a, a Tong war. And the LAPD started hunting the girls because they wanted the reward money. So it's about that drama. Um, and the second story is about, uh, happened in New York, Chinatown at that year. And um, it's about a missionary woman, young missionary woman, whose body was found in the trunk uh, in the apartment of her Chinese lover. So, uh, How does Anna fit, fit into this story? Um, she's solving the crime, so <laughs> she's solving the crime. So she does, she's not actually a, a police officer, is that correct? No, she's a police matron, um, and matrons were sort of almost like social workers. Um, they were 
they began to protect the women in the jail from the actual jailers and cops. But um, they also took care of women and children who intersect, you know, who interacted with the criminal justice system. But Anna does her own thing, so uh, she finds ways to hunt the criminals. So, did you actually um, research Los Angeles newspapers? Did yes. you actually? Yes, uh, I read many, many LA newspapers. Tell us about that a little bit. That had to be interesting. Oh. Um, well, they're available online and they're searchable. So I could search, for instance, Chinatown and read everything about Chinatown, and I pretty much did, you know, between uh, certain um, years. Uh, I think the funnest thing that happened was I ran across, after I finished uh, The Secret Life of Anna Blog, I ran across a story of um, a police matron, a real police matron, who was the daughter of one of the wealthiest men in California. And she was young and she was beautiful and she was single. She was very much like Anna Blanc um, in, and uh, not like Alice Stevens Wells. So um, that was a really wonderful discovery for me um, that maybe my character wasn't so, um, so fictional. So. <laughs> a little more real than you realized. Yeah, exactly. That's exciting. Yeah. What kind of response have you gotten to the book? Um, great response. Um, just lots of award nominations and I won the Colorado Gold and um, reviewers have liked it um, and lots of good reviews on Amazon. So lots of emails from, from readers which means a lot to me. So. Have you, uh, had you written before this book? This was your first book. This is right? my first book. So had you done any kind of writing before that? Um, I wrote a couple of screenplays just for fun. Um, before, I, Actually, I'd written one screenplay before I wrote The Secret Life of Anna Blanc's screenplay. But I'm a research scientist by training, so I wrote a lot of journal articles. So are you are you an avid reader yourself of books? Definitely. What what kind of books do you like to read? Everything. Don't ask me authors. I re read a anything, you know, uh, fiction, nonfiction, silly things. Um. One of the uh, one of the honorees at our uh, at our uh, Cal Awards coming up in May is a librarian who says she reads three or four books a week. Do you read that much? I listen to audiobooks, uh -huh. so it depends on what I'm doing and how much time I have, but um, sometimes I do. Yeah, she uses audiobooks too. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a new thing for me. I haven't, I've, I've listened to two or three, but it's not a regular thing for me. So where do you go from here when you finish this one? Do you have another one in mind, and are you thinking of making a series out of her? Um, I'm definitely, I definitely want to make a series, and I have three more books outlined. Um, one of them is also inspired by the newspaper, the, the Fanny Bixby, who is the police matron who resembles the fictional Anna Blanc. Her brother um, was arrested for white slavery, and um, in the underworld, he was known as the Black Pearl. So um, that sounded so interesting to me, and it really happened. So I'm, I'm looking at fictionalizing that. How exciting. So. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, thank you.
Our second author is Judy Rose, and, and her finalist entry is in the children's book category, the Cal Awards. It's titled, Look Both Ways in Barrio Blanco. This is Judy's debut novel, though she too, interestingly, has done some screenwriting and some, uh, has written some plays, some successful plays. Um, in addition to contending for Cal honors, it's already, her book already has won the 2015 Inc. Award for Best Children's YA Novel and has been included in the American Bookseller Association list of book, uh, best books for young readers and the New York Public Library's 2015 Best Books list. Judy, introduce us to uh, your book. Well, thanks, um, Denny. This is... Um this book means uh, Look Both Ways in the Barrio Blanco, which means the white neighborhood. And uh, it's about the 12-year-old daughter of undocumented immigrants whose world falls apart when she's paired in a mentoring program with a fading television news personality. Now, we were talking at, at dinner before, uh, before the program. Um, this subject of undocumented uh, immigrants is, of course, a hot topic uh, in our nation. And uh, uh, the, uh, the former wife of the governor, Helen Thorpe, uh, wrote a very, very uh, powerful book called Just Like Us. Mm -hmm. And did you get to read that? Was that in any way an influence on you? Yes, I definitely read it. And uh, it's, a, it's a book that, that builds momentum as you go and becomes more compelling as you um, get to know the characters in this non-fictional work of Helen's. Um, I was working on uh, Look Both Ways in the Barrio Blanco when her book came out and of course everyone's asking me, have you read Helen Thorpe's new book? And I'm like, no, but I am going to. And so I started uh, reading it. I was one of the first people to read it as soon as it came out. And um, I, I wouldn't say that it influenced my work as much as that it confirmed it. Uh, Tell us how you got into your your story and your subject. That was That's very interesting. Well, in my case, I was minding my own business at church and was asked along with the rest of the congregation to um, volunteer to mentor at-risk students. And so I told, you know, raised my hand like, oh, I can buy a kid a Coke once a week. And, and uh, it's, it's funny how your life can change on a dime like that. It has completely redirected my entire future that one, what seemed at the time to be a very small decision. And what did you want, what were the children you wound up with? Um, the first um, mentee that I had, uh, in real life her name is Perla, she appears in the book as Jacinta, and um, she was a um, rather unusual within her own social milieu as being very open and a lot of fun and very um, chatty, which is not, I have since learned, um, is not usually what happens when you're paired in a, a, with a mentee whose parents are undocumented. Uh, for one thing, none of, I didn't know that her parents were undocumented. That's not something that's discussed. Um, but traditionally, these kids, boys and girls alike, 
um, they have a secret and uh, what's at risk is their family. And so they're raised from a very early time being told not to talk to white people. And so I suddenly found myself sucked into a world I didn't even know existed. And, and you translated that into this story, is that correct? Exactly. Tell, tell, tell everyone a little bit about the, the plot and, and what, what your protagonist goes through. Um, in the real life situation, it was all very cut and dried. Uh, but it's a novel, and so in a novel, you have to have conflict. So in uh, Look Both Ways in the Barrio Blanco, um, Kate is uh, the, this mentor character who starts out not the least bit interested in being a mentor, and um, she's doing a television news program on immigration and what that looks like in the fictional town of Maplewood, Colorado, which is uh, not so loosely based on Northeast Littleton. And uh, when Jacinta meets her, she's, she's fascinated by this woman that she perceives to be famous and beautiful and all things good and wonderful. And so she has to set about figuring out a way to entrap this woman into becoming her mentor. Has, has writing this and has your experience um, as a mentor yourself changed your view on the whole immigration question? You know, it's actually given me a view, because uh, I don't know that I really thought about it. I, I wasn't one of those people who are either adamant that we need to ship them all back or um, know everything's fine. I really had no opinion whatsoever. And um, now having met these families and seeing what a benefit it is to have um, immigrants in the United States uh, and what it does for our economy, what it does for our standard of living. Um, I'm very much supportive of, um, of immigration reform and uh, the system's broken, we know that. So, I, you know, I don't know that there's an easy answer. I think anyone who thinks there is an easy answer has not looked at the problem long enough. Um, but I definitely think that there is a place for um, people from um, other countries, and, and in Mexico in particular, here in the United States. Now, you're not, you're not new to writing. No, not at all. Uh, but you're new to novels. Yes, and, very uh, much. And tell everyone about the difference as you experience them between writing a play or writing uh, you know, for the screen or the stage and writing a novel. You had some interesting comments. Before. Well, I, I've been writing plays even since I was in elementary school and um, you know, started writing puppet shows in elementary school as a way for my brothers and my sister and I to make money. We'd go do birthday parties. So I've been writing scripts for almost my whole life. And, um, you know, different, writing on different levels as far as professionalism. Sometimes it's just for fun, sometimes it's, you know, for fun and profit. Um, but when you're writing a play, it's a very collaborative process. And you've got a director, and you've got actors, and you've got costumers, and you have set designers and lighting people, and all of these wonderful partners of yours come and they bring their work 
to bear on your work. And it's a wonderful thing. Uh, the collaboration is just so much fun, and I really enjoy it. And so when I stumbled across the story, I knew it wouldn't make a good play. So I decided, OK, well, I'll just learn how to write a book. And it's been ridiculously hard. Uh, and I think, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here because we've got the Colorado Authors League here. So you know what I'm saying. Um, you have to costume it. You have to direct it. You have to be the actor. Every actor is you. And you have to nail all of those very different voices and get the sound right. And you know, when you're writing for screen or you're writing a play, you only really have to be good at so much. And when you are writing a novel, you have to do all things well. And so I, uh, I'm very proud to be part of this group, and I salute anyone who is writing novels, and I think it's a, a fantastic and challenging adventure. Great. Thank you very much. We need to take a pause now, briefly, to allow our next two authors to take the places of uh, Jennifer and Judy. Thank you very much, and we'll be back to it in just a minute. Life is made of moments. Family. A drunk driver could take it all away. Keep your family safe on the road, because after all, nothing is more beautiful. Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Keep your family safe. Okay, we're back. This is part two of our second Colorado Authors League book beat at the Denver Press Club. Once again, thank you for coming. Our next author is Robert Dodge. His book is a finalist for the Cal Award for general nonfiction and is titled, this is a mouthful, Andrian Sylvester, Challenging Marriage Taboos and Paving the Road to Same-Sex Marriage. If you've ever wondered how history influences current events, this story of the connection between two emotional social issues will help you understand. Robert, tell us about it. Well, thank you. Yes, this is a story about how uh, a chance meeting that took place at the Lockheed Aviation production line shortly after World War II started between two people ended up affecting two strongly held marriage taboos. The meeting was between Andrea Perez, a Mexican-American woman, and Sylvester Davis, an African-American man. Now, up till the time this happened in 1942, this had been a segregated workforce, but first Sylvester started there. A year later, Andrea started there. Now, they just happened to get placed on the line near each other. She had some difficulties. He offered to help her out. Turns out they lived somewhat near each other in Los Angeles, and he offered to give her rides. Well, this led to dating, and, well, he was uh, then drafted, and he went off 
and fought in the war for a year, but when he came back, the dating picked up again, and eventually they decided to get married. Now, Los I Angeles. This was in a time when, when interracial marriage was really, oh yes, uh, oh really yes. frowned on. I mean, this and, wasn't. And Los Angeles was especially bad about this, yes, because they'd both grown up seeing whites only sign preventing them from everything imaginable, from movie theaters, uh, dance halls, um, swimming pools, you name it. But they still were in love with each other and they decided in 1947 they were gonna go get married and headed off to the courthouse. And this is when the big shock really came. They were turned down for their marriage license on the basis of violating the state's anti-miscegenation laws, or the laws against interracial marriage. Because California, when it entered the Union, it came in on a very peculiar law, something in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that I won't go into, but for reasons that only apply just about in this case, Andrea was, was listed as white. And so her marrying Andrea would be a violation of anti-miscegenation laws. Now, almost every state in the Union had these laws, but they were not gonna just accept this, and they decided to go to court. But these laws had been upheld in every state in the Union since just after the Civil War and Reconstruction at every level, local, state, federal. So it seemed like their chances were just about nothing, but California Supreme Court, partly because there was a new justice, Roger Traynor, would make an incredible decision. And in a 4-3 decision that Traynor wrote, he would rule that everyone had a right to marry the person of their own choice. Wow, now this broke a log jam. And then a number of other states, seven of them, gradually over the years would decide to do away with their laws against mixed marriage. Because this wasn't just laws against blacks and whites, it was against whites and Asians, and in a few cases, whites and Native Americans. But it would take 19 years for this to get to the Supreme Court with the Loving versus Virginia case of 1967. And finally, these laws preventing mixed marriage were put to an end in the United States. So this was the first great marriage taboo that they influenced. Two years later, we had Stonewall riots in New York and gay activism really took up. By the 1990s, that involved same-sex marriage and all throughout the country, states passed laws defining marriage as being between a man and a woman. As the new millennium began, couples were challenging this. And by 2003, in Massachusetts, the first successful challenge came. That court, though, the Massachusetts Supreme Court relied extremely heavily on Perez versus Sharp, this case of Andrea and Sylvester, citing it 12 times and using trainer's language that 
everyone had a right to marry the person of their own choice in saying that their law was unconstitutional. Three, four years later, rather, California, once again relying on this same case, became the second state in the land to declare their law unconstitutional. By 2009, 2010, it was just going bam, 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 bam. States everywhere started to declare these laws unconstitutional. By the time it got to 1914, 30 laws had been knocked down. In 2015, it went to the Supreme Court, as we all know. There were a lot of amicus briefs filed, and a number of them brought in the case of Andrew and Sylvester. How did you get onto this? <laughs> well, I just came across, I read history journals a lot, and I just came across this case, and it just took me aback a little bit, so I looked to see if anybody had written a book about it. You, the, the, the Andrea case, the yes. Andrew and Sylvester part of it. Yeah, so nobody had. So I, well, for one thing, there had only been there was one really good article, and I went to Washington and interviewed the author of that article. And then I read, it's mainly things I found in law review articles, but there wasn't a lot written about it, but, and it involved, it's some, a lot of it's sort of a personal thing, like we have a daughter who is, adopted Chinese daughter who had a Caucasian husband. My brother is married to a Chinese woman. So many of our friends were in these marriages. And I thought, well, you know, these would have all been considered no-no. Uh, uh, it just seemed like a book that had to be written. So this is what really got me interested. What kind of a reception has it gotten? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm not getting rich or anything. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, what, what's the social reaction to it? Well, I, I, know, I've, I know some people who are happy I've written it, and uh, so uh, I can't really comment too much beyond that, I suppose. It's really interesting how court cases can set precedents for years later, and that's, this is a really good example of that. There are many, and they, they often talk about the, what the court decided in the past, you know, in the past. Oh yes, and that's what so much of this was. And just, I mean, it might, it's a little tedious for some people maybe because it's so heavily documented, but it's. Who was Chief Justice at that time? Well, that was the thing. Earl Warren had been Chief Justice when their case, he'd been Governor of California when their case was decided. And then he was Chief Justice when their case, I mean. When the case chief, came, when the to, the Supreme case came to the really? Supreme Court. So. Was there ever any suggestion that that um, uh, that he was not objective, or that he was in any way biased by his previous uh, role, or anything? No, because he really made almost he really avoided making mention about it when he was governor, because it was such an unpopular thing. I mean, even ten years after it happened, only four percent of the public supported intermarriage. That was in the late fifties. So, no, he was, he was encouraged by his own, his own political operatives to just keep his mouth shut about it. Did Sylvia and, and uh, or uh, Andrea and Sylvester, um, 
continue to live in Los Angeles or in California? Oh, oh, or oh yes. No they, no, they stayed right there. He kept his job at Lockheed. They moved into something called the Joe Lewis Housing Tract, which was a black on one side, Mexican on the other side, and they moved into the black side. And, uh, and actually, her parents had not spoken with her from the time he started dated, dating him. So there was a lot of uh, racism at that level, too. You mentioned that she was considered white, though I gather she was Hispanic. Oh, well, I can tell you, I mean, that's a very weird thing. When, uh, in 1850, when, when uh, California came into the Union after the Mexican-American War, all the Mexicans living there were given the option of being citizens of the United States. But at that time, to be a citizen of the United States, you had to be white. That's the only thing that, so they were just designated as white, period. Even though by the 1930s, Mexicans in uh, Los Angeles went to segregated Mexican schools. And I mean, this is the only place where the white came in. They were listed as white, but totally segregated. And wow. Yes, it was just a, and it was the center of the eugenics movement as well, so lots of... When, when, did, when did they die? How long did they...? Uh, she died uh, maybe in the 80s. He made it until the... Till, um, well, he'd, he'd, he'd done this interview in the 90s and he died I tried to did everything I could to try to find family members, but I. They was, remained was married though until. Her oh death. yes, yes they did. Interesting. But in, they in never your, were activists at all. They wanted just to be married couple and mind their own in, business. In your book, do you get into their lives together? Yes, as much as I everything I could find anywhere. Yes, I did. I keep bringing that back into the story. We've talked a lot tonight about research. This had to be a challenging research uh, project. Well, I've got, I think, 530 sources. And, uh, wow, <laughs> that's amazing. That's all, uh, okay, I think that's a, that uh, pretty well wraps it up. Thank you very much, Robert. Sounds like a very interesting book. Our final author is uh, Sharon Carnes Mann. Sharon is a Cal Awards finalist in a very specialized category, short fiction. That's another way of saying she writes short stories, which is an art form in itself. Her current collection of short stories is entitled Tesserae, a mosaic of story. Two short stories from that book are up for the Cal Award, Knife River Flint and Cowboy Heart. Tell us about those and about writing a short story. As Denny said, this is a collection of my short stories. And uh, I never set out to create a collection. This is completely accidental. And uh, it came about because I had been working on short stories for many years. And some had been um, ended up in juried anthologies. Some were still in my desk drawer and hadn't been published at all. <clears throat> But about a year ago, I decided I really wanted to move on to my next project. But these things were mental clutter. And I wanted to finish them off, though, especially the ones that were not finished. 
But that meant uh, sending all of these stories off into, you know, to various publishers, and that would be kind of a, a long, staggered process. And I really wanted to be done with it. And since uh, three of them, one of them had won an award, had been published and won an award, and two of them had been in, in highly competitive jur juried anthology, so I thought, I know the qualities there, but my family won't know where all of these things are. There's one in this book, there's one in this book, there's one in my desk drawer, there's one in my computer. <clears throat> so I, I thought, you know, I want to get rid of this mental clutter. I am just going to aggravate, aggregate these stories and just print them out or self-publish them. So I polished and polished and I had it all ready to go. And I hadn't chosen a, a, you know, a self-publishing publisher. I was just beginning to make that decision. And then I thought, wait a minute, I've never sent this to a publisher. And all of a sudden I realized that I had a, a really a completed manuscript. So I sent it off, not with much hope and with this backup plan that I still wanted it out by Christmas so I could give it to my family. And I was really only tending to, uh, uh, intending to do two to 10 copies. And um, within three weeks of sending it off to the, a publisher, I heard back and I had a contract. So that was a wonderful experience. And um, I had chosen the publisher because I noticed that they had an anthology in the Colorado Book Awards last year. And it's Alacrity House Publishing. And they're located in Southern Colorado. All of my stories, almost all of my stories, are set in Southern Colorado. So because of that, I thought, well, they've got an affinity for collections and anthologies. They have an affinity, probably have an affinity for um, the setting. And that was exactly true. They loved the stories, and I think they really did because they are, they're situated in the San Luis Valley. Uh, so that's how the book uh, came about. So tell us about the two stories that are uh, in the running for a Cal Award. <clears throat> um, the first story is called Knife River Flint. And this is a story about a little girl who, and her sister um, who have suddenly lost their parents and their grandfather. And they are living with the grandmother called Granny. Um, but she's not their biological grandmother, and she's very young. She had married their grandfather, and they're all at their wits' ends about this situation, really not knowing how this is going to turn out. And so the little girl is the narrator of the story. It's told in first person from her point of view. And um, she does a lot of projecting, projecting all of her fear and negativity onto Granny. And um, the, the central metaphor is, um, is about arrowheads, and there's a very loved collection of arrowheads within this family. And the metaphor, <coughs> excuse me, is the it, Knife River Flint, is the flintiness of her heart, and how this is, is, has been broken, and the question is, can you mend flint? So that's the, that's the Knife River Flint, uh, Cowboy Heart, is um, a story about the misguided hopes of a cowboy. And he is also in Southern Colorado. It, it, these are contemporary stories. And um, he secretly, he hangs out at the bar, you know, with the, all the other cowboys, but he has the secret passion of writing poetry in the evenings because he's lonely. He lives in a trailer out on a county road. And uh, He's reading one night at the local library, and there's this woman there who's a teacher at CU in the MFA program there. 
and she loves his poetry. So she says, you know, come on up to see you, and we'll, we're doing a workshop this summer. And so it's about the arc of his development as he is uh, tempted by this offer and um, how he makes decisions about what home is and what really matters in life. Now, the, the really interesting difference to me as a writer between full-length fiction and short stories is you have to you have to get into a story, tell your story, get out of your story in a fraction of what a novel is. Most short stories, I think, are like in the four or five thousand word range. Mm -hmm. Is that is mm -hmm. that where you yeah. are? Yeah. Talk about how you how you do that for all of us who haven't done that. It is a challenge. It is uh, it's a mistake to believe that writing short stories is easier than writing a novel. Um, I have written novels. I've done full-length work. Um, short stories are very hard to write, but I think that um, you know there's some key things. Um, the arc of the 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 development um, is going to be shorter. So you have your classic story structure for a novel with all of the um, reversals, you know, the situation reversals and plot twists, and you'll just have fewer of those. But you still need an arc, you still need conflict, uh, because that's what drives a story is conflict. So, and, and then I also think that um, short stories tend to be a little more character driven than plot driven, so which is typical of literary, and I'm a literary writer, so um, I would say that's true. Um, I think the denouement is almost non-existent in uh, short stories. You really have to trust the reader. Uh, you, have, you as the author have to set it up so the reader can figure out and tie up the loose ends themselves without, you don't have that, the luxury of a long explanation at the end of your story after your climax. You don't have that luxury. And so you have to set it up so they can understand it, but you also just kind of throw it out there and trust that your readers will get it. And when you think about, you know, lots of short stories, some of my favorite short stories like, um, uh, Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. You know, people are still arguing about that moment of redemption when the grandmother touches the misfit. Um, but she, had, she couldn't explain it all to us. She had to let, it, let us work that out. And um, many short stories are like that. That's I, sort of the uh, concept of a lot of art is the artist wants you to put yourself into it and reach your own Mm -hmm. interpretation of the art. Here mm -hmm. you're asking the reader to kind of reach their own conclusion about some things. That's right. And I think that um, for a short story writer, I, I think you do have the luxury of going back and, for example, I will go through and make a pass and just circle every single verb in the entire story and really go back and make them more muscular, um, stronger, I make sure that they are consistently in the same tense. I think one of the nice things about short stories is that you can get away with using present tense. You can do that in novels, but it's so immediate that um, it can kind of wear you out, you know, if you read a whole novel in present tense, but you can do that in a short story. Um, it's the sa same with um, writing in first person. It's easier to get away with that in a short story. Short story yeah. And it gives that immediacy because it's going to end very quickly. So you talked about um, this cowboy that you created writing poetry. 
Are any of his poems in your story? Why, yes, they are. <laughs> so it's your poem, right? <laughs> well, you might look at it that way. I would prefer to look at it and say that it's his poem. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to write it, right? I had to write it, yes. And so have you ever considered yourself a poet? I do, but that's a secret. <laughs> <laughs> so how many times did you write that poem before you were satisfied? Oh, a lot, a lot. Yeah, that was hard. And I wasn't even sure it should be in there. I really questioned whether it belonged in there. But it really, it ends the story, and it really spoke his heart. So I think it works. I'm hoping it works. <laughs> now, I'm are, hoping the judges think it works. <laughs> are all of the stories... Um, of the same genre, the, the Southwest? The For the most part, yes. Um, one of them, um, Pockets, which won the Cal Award last year, um, I was playing around with um, a couple things. I wanted to play around with um, using lists as the um, organizing principle for the story. So you think of um, somebody like Tim O'Brien who wrote The Things They Carried, um, the story about the Vietnamese, uh, Vietnam, sold U.S. soldiers in Vietnam, but the story is told by about the things they carried. And so I wanted to try that technique. And so Pockets is organized around um, what a dry cleaner finds in people's pockets. And um, it also kind of tells the stories of people's lives. And I wrote that one. And it was only, I worked very hard on it, but it was only about 1,850 words. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try to do flash fiction, which is under 1,000 words. So that was more than half of my story, really, to get it down. And oh, man, did I work on that. I cut and cut and cut and cut. And it is a very lean, taut story. <laughs> but I think I, I'm, my guess is that's probably the reader's favorite in the book. Do you see yourself writing another collection of short stories, or are you going to return to longer fiction? My next project is longer fiction. Um, I have to say I don't know where the stories come from. They just come. And when they come, I don't know if it's going to be long fiction or short fiction until I sit down and work on them. Really? Really? You just start out with an idea yeah. and you start... I know, I know pretty quickly, um, you know, that this is not sustainable across, you know, it doesn't have enough characters and the characters aren't coming to me. Um, but boy, once a story takes hold of you, it's hard to let it go. <laughs> when I, uh, I interviewed Margaret Cole for, uh, for uh, a video about her. She's our Lifetime Achievement Award recipient at the Cal Banquet Next in two weeks. And uh, she talked about writing continuously when she starts a story and not, not worrying about polishing it mm -hmm. or anything, just get it all down and then go back. Is that, is that your approach? Yes, absolutely. I get the story down and see what it is. And when I'm satisfied, only when I'm satisfied with the story do I go back and start doing the edits. And, and is that true whether you're writing short story or a full-length novel? Maybe not not so much. Um, I am not a really good plotter, so I have to mess around a lot on the page. I'm a pantser. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you that don't know, pantsers are the people that fly by the seat of their pants. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell us about your next project. 
Uh, my next project, I believe, will be, um, I've been working on it, so I hope it comes to fruition. Um, it will be, I would say, fictionalized memoir. It will be uh, many elements from my life. And um, we've had some very dramatic stories in our lives. We were in the middle of 30 lawsuits at the same time related to our business. Um, when our house, uh, we had a propane explosion and it blew our house up and uh, burned it down. So um, some of my friends that have walked through that journey with me are here. And I feel that when you have something that dramatic um, happen to you that somehow uh, there's, there's something that needs to be told about that. And I'm working out <clears throat> what that is. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but the, the story elements are definitely there. How did you come up with the name for your book? Oh, I am glad you asked. I meant to say that earlier. Um, I wanted to point out the cover. Um, this turquoise is not a solid turquoise. If you get close to it, it's actually veined. So it's uh, kind of representing a turquoise stone. And then um, the um, little tiles there are actually tesserae. Tesserae is Latin for the small square um, tiles that have been hand cut, not broken, but hand cut on a, a, with a hammer and hardy. And I'm a mosaic artist, and so um, I just thought that putting a collection together, it made a lot of sense. It felt the same way to me as putting together a mosaic where I'm taking different pieces and putting them together into a new art form. And I thought they did a lovely job. Um, what they did here is there's a little um, token or icon in the middle of some of these, and those are associated with each story. So then it's also in the table of contents and then at the chapter headings as well. So I thought the publisher, uh, their graphic designer, did a nice job of conceptualizing and capturing. Did you have input into the, the graphic, the illustration? No, they sent it to me and the only input I had was the first version that was um, a darker green. Oh. It was beautiful, but it looked too dark. Wow. I just asked them to lighten it up, but no, I, they came up with that themselves. Terrific. Well, thank you very much. Very interesting. This concludes the formal part of our uh, second Colorado Authors League book beat at the Denver Press Club. Again, thank you for coming. I hope you enjoyed meeting these authors and learning about their books.